It's Behind the Headlines. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. I am executive editor of the Express News Group, which publishes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And uh, great panel, as usual, this morning. We have David Rattray, who is the editor of the East Hampton Star. Good morning, David. Hey, hey, Joe. Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of uh, the website Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Morning, Joe. And uh, we have our own Michael Wright, who is the senior staff writer at the Express News Group. Good morning, Michael. Welcome to the show. Morning, everybody. So um, we we certainly are in the midst of the the uh, battle against COVID-19, and it continues. But we had a little bit of a twist this week. And, and Denise, you had a story uh, that just went up. Uh, we've talked quite a bit in in our papers about the nursing homes, and it's obviously become a bigger issue with uh, the way it's been dogging uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, when it came to the way the state released information about who died after con- uh, contracting COVID in nursing homes or being in nursing homes and, and being treated for it. Um, you had a little bit of a different take on this. This is a, an inside look at uh, a former administrator who dealt with this crisis uh, right in the middle uh, and ended up leaving uh, a local facility. Uh, and he had some thoughts about about what it was like. And I thought it was a very insightful interview. You want to talk about it a little bit? Sure. Uh, this was, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name correctly. Laguno? Laguno? Lagano. Lagano. Okay. Um, and uh, that's the beauty of being print journalists. We, we don't necessarily <laughs> need to know that. Anyway, yeah. Um, but um, he, he um, say that again, Mike. Lagano. Lagano? Okay. Um, I'm sure he's told me his name, but I don't. anyway, <laughs> so um, he um, he was the administrator for 11 years at um, the Hamptons, uh, Hampton Center for Rehabilitation and Nursing in Southampton. And um, I started talking with him last year uh, after I just was calling around to the different nursing homes and um, he was willing to get on the phone and talk and He's talked to me a lot on background um, about his experience and uh, shared some communications from the state health department with me um, and the things that they were, the other d- different directives that they were getting. And he shared with me how, um, you know, they never knew what was going to happen. Like they would get a directive at like nine o'clock at night that had to be implemented immediately. And uh, that things like that apparently used to go on all the time. Um, and one of those directives was actually the now it's sort of infamous March 25th directive from the state health department requiring nursing homes to uh, take in COVID positive patients from hospitals. You know, the state was very, um, very, very concerned about hospitals being overwhelmed and they wanted to free up beds in hospitals. And so they required the um, nursing homes to um, take in these patients. Uh, and also at the same time prohibited them, I thought it was interesting, from testing um, the, them for COVID-19. I think they were trying to save tests. I don't know, like you have to go back in time and the tests were really scarce and everything. Um, so um, according to the governor's office, this was all done pursuant to federal guidelines and you know there was it had no negative effects on the nursing home at all. If, and if they could not properly care for the patients with COVID, they weren't supposed to take them in. Um, and that's been, you know, the drumbeat and had no effect, et cetera, et cetera. Now we have since learned that 
you know, the state was essentially suppressing the death toll data in nursing homes right along. Um, they Can you called, explain how was the state doing that, Denise? We've talked about that before. The, 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 yeah. the way they did the way they did it was really just sort of juggling numbers, right? Well, I mean, you know, Mike, Mike and I have gone back and forth with this over, over the last year because um, we were watching very closely the data that they were putting out. Um, they were, um, when, when, a, when a resident of a nursing home was transferred to a hospital with COVID because they got sick enough to be admitted to a hospital and then subsequently died, they were not, the state was not reporting that death as a nursing home death. It was reported as a hospital death. So the state is saying, well, you know, we reported all the deaths, but they kind of artificially suppressed the number of deaths in nursing homes by excluding that. And when, you know, kicking and screaming, they were forced by, uh, you know, embarrassment, I think, to really disclose the data, the number of uh, long-term care facility deaths, because it's nursing homes and adult care facilities, went from like 6,640 or something to um, over 15,000 deaths when all of those other deaths were pulled in. And they keep saying, well, we were auditing it. We weren't sure that, you know, they were all accurate and we had to be sure and we were doing this audit, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, ultimately it was, it seems like it was a way for the governor at his Emmy award-winning daily broadcast to be able to say, you know, well, we're 39th in the nation for, you know, because it really wasn't that bad with the nursing home deaths. So, uh, you know, that's what critics are, are, are saying. And um, that's- I was, surprised. I, I was yeah. you know, thought it was interesting too, that the subject of your interview talked about the PTSD that he actually suffered going through this as an administrator trying to deal with this crisis. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was every bit as hard, if not even harder, uh, on people who work in nursing homes. Um, because as Vince has pointed out to me time and again, you know, we live with these people. It's not like we're, you know, our nurses see somebody for four or five days or two weeks and, and then, you know, there's a casualty. But these are people that live in our facility. We take care of them every day. They've been there for years. It's their home. He said, you know, we all get attached to them. They're family members. Um, and, you know, when people die, um, you know, they really take it very personally. And I, you know, I mean, I saw that my husband's mom was in the skilled nursing facility at Connick Bay for three years before she passed away. And um, I saw that. I, you know, among the staff and the people there, you know, when someone died, you know, it would affect you. Like, you know, I grew attached to different people. I still think of them when I go there sometimes, you know, it's like, so that rang true to me, you know, like I kind of related to that. And then the um, other and, thing in, in the interview that, I mean, that just really struck me is, is he's, he's talking about, you, you know, how, how you have these workers who are risking their lives on a daily basis, it's frontline for them, um, but they've been put in this slot of being the, air quotes, bad guys, yeah. because every story needs a bad guy. And here, here are these people that are, are doing their best, they're, they're putting their lives on the line, they're working, they're being um, you know, pigeonholed as the bad guys, but you've got you know, parades around the hospitals and parades around you know, for the fire departments and first responders for the work that they're doing. But these nursing home people are just being unrecognized for for what they did. And I think that was really powerful. Even worse, being like, yeah, you know, he was saying that people are accusing us of murdering them, you know, right. 
but there, so it was definitely, you know, a really bad time. And um, he, he says that, you know, different people are retiring and leaving and he predicts kind of like an exodus um, of administrate of experienced administrators from uh, the downstate region. So we'll see. Well, you know, I thought it was a compelling, he had a compelling story to tell. So, you know, Denise, this makes me think, um, you know, about, <clears throat> you know, we've heard some concern that as more people are vaccinated and there's a sense perhaps erroneously that the, the virus is going away, that there may be uh, increased pressure for, for visits, unsafe practices. Did you, did you hear any of that? Um, he, we didn't discuss that in, yeah. in the interview, but I've, I've heard that from other people. I mean, yeah. yeah, there is a sense of that. And because nobody really knows for sure, you know, I mean, segue into the vaccine discussion here, Joe, but like nobody really knows for sure um, how effective they're going to be against transmitting the virus, even if you're protected yourself. Like, can you still transmit the virus to other people? And that's why they're, you know, they're telling people they could got to continue to wear masks and you shouldn't open things up too quickly. You have people in the federal government saying that now and like lots of luck with that, guys, because, you know, people are sick of wearing masks and people are sick of staying home and, you know, people, everybody wants this to be over, but, you know. Well, the ar yeah. argument, argument yesterday between, you know, Fauci and Rand Paul about whether yeah. masks are still necessary after yeah. vaccination is just ridiculous. Theater, I believe, is how Rand Paul describes it. Yeah, that's right. I want to bring in Mike Wright because this was a, a conversation that we certainly had um, throughout the crisis because Mike did a lot of reporting, attempting to report on the situations in the nursing homes. And, it, and, and I think, Mike, you ran head on into some of what Denise uh, is describing after her interview uh, with the administrator, that there was, there was a real defensiveness among nursing homes and everybody was terrified about how, how they were going to be portrayed. Uh, and, and as a result, we really hit brick wall after brick wall in trying to report on just what the situations were in there. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um... You know, to a certain extent, I, I kind of didn't blame them. Uh, you know, I spoke with Vince, I think, once very early on in the in the whole thing and then um, had, a, had a pretty open relationship with Kelly Brady, who runs the West Hampton Care Center, uh, mostly because in the spring they didn't really have uh, a, a terrible outbreak of it. They had a, a couple of dozen cases and, and a handful of deaths. Uh, you know, um, the Hampton Center uh, that Vince was the administrator of had had it very bad early on, um, you know, probably because they get a lot of patients from the hospitals and uh, they never really spoke with us. Um, but we were talking with a lot of families who were sharing what was going on before the nursing homes had started to uh, report a lot of those deaths through the state because the state's data was still coming out very slowly. Uh, but we were we were talking with um, uh, people who had loved ones there who said they knew people were sick and that people were dying. And so we kind of got off to an adversarial relationship, especially with the with the Hampton Center. And I know that, you know, Vince spoke to some of the people that uh, I had been uh, talking with, not knowing that we had been talking with most of them. Uh, and they all said that, you know, they were very mad about what we were reporting. But I mean, frankly, we never we, we tried to get them to say, geez, you know, we're hamstrung here. We're not getting any of the PPE from the from the state and federal supplies. And uh, the state, you know, blamed a lot of it on the corporate structure that runs nursing homes and that 
that they were, um, you know, short-staffed and ill-prepared in the name of uh, profits, which, you know, they are for-profit organizations. And and the governor, um, you know, somewhat defensively kept saying when the, um, the, the transfer order was still in place that, you know, the nursing homes don't have to accept these people. The, you know, the, the instruction from the state was that those patients uh, should be sent there because they were trying to get people out of hospitals because they still thought that hospitals were under the looming threat of being overrun with patients and they needed to get people to places where they could be cared for. And the state was saying, the nursing home should only accept people that they can care for, but then they weren't apparently really making sure that the nursing homes had the facilities and were following the practices. And, you know, a, a nursing home the size of the Hampton Center, which has 280 beds, I think 220 of them are occupied or something like that, you know, for them to say, all right, these staff members are only going to work in the COVID wing and they're never going to leave there for weeks at a time is it's just kind of untenable. And I think they were, they were sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place of, uh, you know, corporate limitations and these state demands that didn't really understand the extent to which the corporate structure wasn't able to just, you know, pick up and, and expand like hospitals and those that can, you know, reach into debt and, uh, and go to public, look for public assistance on that, which the you know private companies just were not getting. And, it, and, wh- and where were they going to go to? Where were they going to yeah. send these people? I mean, you and I, Mike, we talked last year about trying to find out. I mean, lots of luck trying to get information from the state public relations people. It was it, it was impossible. But and uh, I don't know about you, but it still is impossible. But still, nobody yeah. gets it. And and I mean. Finally, I got some answers from um, the a spokesperson with the Department of Health last year because, you know, where were these COVID only? You know, she was insisting they had COVID only facilities and they could have gone there. You know, well, where are they? You know, yeah, I had like heard two. people propose different places like uh, um, the Foley nursing home. You know, right. But that never happened. Finally, after like two weeks of this back and forth. Um, she came up with two places, one in Brooklyn and one upstate somewhere. So huh. like, how realistic is that really? Um, and when you're dealing with like a nursing home where you've got a dementia unit with however many beds, like how do you deal with that with COVID? Um, hey, David Rattray, when, when, when we look back on this at some point from a, a, even a small distance and try and talk about the history of, of how this all went down. Nursing homes are going to be a big part of it. I think nationally, it was a flashpoint nationally, uh, but certainly uh, in New York. Uh, and I wonder, uh, you know, it was it was an almost, I think, I think Denise touched on this. It was an almost untenable situation. Um, the, the governor's actions had to do with worrying about the hospitals being overrun. And I think that was why he chose to do what he did. But it's the classic example of the cover-up being worse than the crime. I feel like the the, the decision that he made along the way uh, to do that is open for debate. And maybe in retrospect, uh, I think it cost lives. But I'm not sure what the alternatives were and what you know how many lives would have been lost in other ways. But the, the worst part of it was this attempt to not own up to it. And, and we weren't able to get basic information about uh, these, these decisions. 
I think the hindsight question is is a fair one. Um, but something De- Denise um, <clears throat> brought up, I think, has been my experience. And I'm sure Mike too, is is that you really couldn't get an answer out of the state health department, out of the governor's office. And when you got a dialogue going with someone at the health department, even off the record, they deferred to the governor's office. Um, you know, now I think we know why. I mean, there's a, a sense that it was off with your head if you spoke to the media and you weren't part of the governor's inner circle. But I had a really weird exchange early on, uh, maybe maybe it was in the summer with um, the health department. Cuomo had had, had a... Um, Kind of a weird uh, press conference on a on the back of a boat. I don't know if you guys remember this. They were going to go, um, <laughs> they were going to go push some uh, old subway cars off to create an artificial reef somewhere. Um, but in during, he said something really interesting during during the, during this. He said that he want he was going to impose um, you know strict lockdown orders if the the positive the positivity rate as they call it got above one percent. Which, you know, at the time in August was it was close, you know. So I got in touch with the, the health department. I said, but you, wait a minute, is the governor saying if this hits 1.3, 1.7, we're going to be shut down again? And we went around and around and around some guy named Josh, I think, at the health department and uh, state health department. And ultimately, he said, you know, uh, you just have to take the governor at his word. The governor speaks for himself. And huh. Huh. I thought, wow, this is this is the New York State Health Department in the middle of a pandemic, and you're saying, "Meh, ask the governor." I mean, it's really <laughs> it's really weird. I and mean, we've dealt, I know we've all dealt with recalcitrant government officials before, but um, the degree to which the governor's office or the governor was controlling the messaging on COVID um, was not. Re- I can't think of a parallel uh, in that intense control level. And it continues, right? I mean, I think, and and I think you touched on yeah. it. Um, it's it was. I think that there's a palpable fear among folks down the, the the food chain that no, this has to come from the governor's office specifically. That and, started and in I 2011. Think, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that started in 2011. Right. We saw it with the Department of Environmental Conservation. They went completely silent. It's absolutely office absolutely. took over. So I mean, this this is in the, in, indicative of of Governor Cuomo and and the way he operates, I think, and 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 I think that some of that is bringing about his downfall. I think he's a very, uh, uh, well, you know, imperious. Right? We can go we can go dictatorial. I mean, to some degree, I think he likes to control the message, and I think you see that. I think the frustration that you see in the governor right now that the messages have gotten away from him, uh, I think that's an interesting part of this, too. Uh, This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw of the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton of the Express News Group. Our panelists today, David Rattray of the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and our own Michael Wright, who is a staff writer at the Express News Group. So vaccines this week mm-hmm. continue to be uh, at the top of everybody's mind, uh, but we had a real breakthrough, Mike, this week. Uh, we had uh, a state mass vaccination site finally open on the East End this morning. Uh, at Stony Brook Southampton College. As we speak, the first people are getting shots there, I believe, right? Today's yeah, we Friday, record on Friday morning. Yes, and it's I Friday morning, right. <laughs> they started Sorry. taking, yeah, that's okay. They started taking yeah. appointments on Wednesday. Wednesday but yeah. as with everything with the, this vaccine, uh, the local site went up at 8 a.m. right on the dot. 
uh, the, the local site became an option. And <laughs> I found it ironic that people were being uh, immediately transferred to Niagara Falls, which is, I believe, the farthest you can possibly <laughs> take somebody away from home to get a shot. And then the site, the, the site just completely shut down for a bit. Shut but they deep. did, within about an hour, they got everything up online and there were a lot of vaccines uh, a lot of appointments available. So, I mean, that that's a game changer, though. I mean, the East End has really been struggling to access vaccine, and, and this has the potential to be a game changer, doesn't it, Mike? Yeah, well, we were struggling to access vaccine for a while, and then either uh, just because of the way the system sort of got up to speed or, you know, a lot of people think the screaming of the local officials, Peter Van Skoyak, Fred Thiel, Jay Schneiderman in particular, uh, you know, we got this flood of vaccines in the last three weeks, I guess it's been now or two weeks where you had you've had four major vaccination clinics run by Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, uh, three of them in Southampton and then one in East Hampton. You had East Hampton Town got a couple of uh, uh, allocations, uh, a few hundred, but they got all their firemen. They started getting grocery store workers and transportation workers. They got their senior center drivers uh, vaccinated so that, you know, some services can start opening up there. And then, yeah, this, you know, this, this uh, center at the the college really does change the change the whole tenor of it. Uh, Peter Van Skoyak sort of uh, mentioned it yesterday in uh, in the town board meeting that they now don't expect that they're going to get the big allocations of shots that they were still hoping to get uh, because this is going to be uh, such a you know it's going to fill such a gap. But he is still hoping that they'll be able to get some small allocations to to target specific groups that may be falling through the cracks because this is still these appointments are still only being made through the state website which yes on Wednesday and Thursday there were tons of appointments and actually there still are as of yesterday they were all the way into late April for appointments so people are gobbling them up because you know somebody from Brooklyn if they want to if that's where they can get an appointment they can make an appointment there and travel just like we were traveling to Jones Beach and, and Stony Brook for so long so and it's, uh, a, it's a big deal it's a lot of shots and it's a, an important distinction, too, that the state sites offer the shots for people with comorbidities. That wasn't the case with the shots uh, that were being offered through the, the towns and the, and the hospital. They were focused right, on. Right, because those, uh, those were county allocations uh, that went to the town. And then the hospitals have they each each. Uh, it, um, uh, you know, distribution center has a specific group that they are supposed to be handling. Pharmacies are still only allowed to do seniors over 60. Um, and, and a lot of that's just logistics of, of who's capable of um, sort of ensuring that the people that they're reaching out to are, are people that are eligible and not having to do a lot of background. If you had, you know, essential workers able to go to pharmacies, you know, and all of a sudden the pharmacy has to be checking to see if they work in a restaurant or in a bodega and, you know, all these uh, various uh, requirements that are, are um, needed to make you eligible now. Denise, Peconic Bay Medical Center has been terrific. They're part of the Northwell system. Uh, they've done a nice job, too, of reaching out into Riverhead and the North Fork and hitting the key groups up that way, haven't they? Um, to, actually, to my knowledge, I think they've just been doing healthcare workers. Oh, they've been focused on healthcare workers? Yeah, I think so. 
Mike, hospitals are supposed to do health care and senior yeah. citizens. I don't think they've gotten an allocation like from the state or the county for other other people, other groups of people. Um, no, that's surprising to me because because I know Northwell that Northwell was supposed to be their partner. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. The Northwell was working a little more closely. So I think, I South think, Ham- I think Southampton Hospital has has done some distribution up on on the North Shore. As yeah, they well. they did. They've at PLIA, yeah, yeah. yeah. they've had clinics there. And, you know, there's been a, a, a pop-up or a pod, I don't know what you want to call it, but at the uh, town senior center in Aquabog and at the town uh, uh, Peconic uh, Lane Community Center in Southhold a couple of times. Um, there's been um, a couple of them at, at Peconic Landing out in Greenport um, a little earlier on. But um, again, uh, you know, you got. You have to wonder about the vaccine distribution thing too. What we know about how you know the level of micromanagement and control. Um, I had a staff member to a a lawmaker, um, a state lawmaker, tell me that you know they were fighting with the governor's office about getting a, a vaccine allocation out on the North Fork because it was slow in coming, if you recall, and um, that uh, an aide to the governor told them, you know. The governor knows where every vaccine goes in the state. <laughs> There's a theme. There's a theme developing a theme there. in this in this show, it's, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's totally it's totally true. And I mean you can you can say what you want about New York's rollout. Um, you know, be it micromanagement or it's just it's been very deliberate and it, it seems like, you know, the allocations have come very specifically. You had you know, people complained that, oh, uh, you know, uh, communities of color weren't getting it. You had a pop up appear in East Hampton for communities of color. And, you know, the senior senior citizens were screaming and all of a sudden out comes a flood of shots for thousands of senior citizens. You know, it's it's been a very kind of deliberate and slow as compared to, say, Florida, where they just sort of opened the floodgates and you had you know, 80 year olds sitting in lawn chairs for hours outside the uh, the Walgreens. But, you know, so I, I guess there's different philosophies. Well, I, I think we, we spoke to it last week, too. I, I think it, it feels like it's just overall, it's all loosening up. And on a personal level, I brought my mother into this conversation on the radio show before 78 and living up in uh, Whitesboro, New York, near near Utica. And I was finally able this morning. I'm so relieved and happy. I was finally able to get her an appointment at the Walgreens. At um, Southampton here, College? At Southampton College, <laughs> yeah. She's going to fly down on the helicopter um, at, at the Walgreens near near where she's at and got to call her this morning and tell her that because, you know, she she can't use the Internet and she really doesn't know how to use her cell phone, um, you know, very well either. So it was, you know, so it was nice to be able to help her to do that. But I think, again, that just shows that, that you know, however long it's been, it's it's kind of loosening up. I think we've gotten to you know, to some core groups, and, and now it's kind of spreading out a little bit. Oh, but uh, David Rattray, East Hampton Town has been really aggressive. In, yeah, in- they, they, they have. I mean, there's been um, probably uh, at this point maybe a, a couple thousand uh, doses distributed, and they opened up a center, which has been pretty effective. And uh, there's been a huge turnout of volunteers to to help. Um, also, also, I think on Shelter Island, has been a similar story. Um uh, but but the thing about this is, and we so we're talking. Uh, Mike brought right brought up the the demographics. I mean, according to the state, there's a huge imbalance between white and black um, or uh, Hispanic or Latino people, and it it is on the order of 
close to 78% of eligible white state residents have received at least one dose, but only 9.8% of eligible black New Yorkers statewide, and only 5% of eligible black New Yorkers on Long Island, which wow. is... Um, which is really uh, shocking because, as as I think everybody knows, the um, the death rate is higher among, particularly among uh, black uh, residents, uh, and, and but also Latino residents. Um, so, you know, it, it does seem like a certain certain the doses are being une unevenly distributed. Um, so, so there, but you know, by the numbers, that there's, you know, it may look good, you know, to have two thousand people vaccinated in East Hampton, but when you pull out, um, you know, here's the other thing: there's very little virus transmission in East Hampton. Period. This is not a place, really, where you should be directing huge resources in terms of vaccinations. I mean, people want it; we understand that, but there are communities here. Uh, parts of uh, Riverhead, um, Western Southampton Town, um, you know, it, where where the virus transmission remains really significant, and yet resources are being directed where it's not really needed. So you got to wonder to what extent, you know, politics, loud voices. Um, is it election year in East Hampton Town? Well, you bet it is. A supervisor's up. So he's going to work, Steve Ballone, until, you know, the Department of Health kicks uh, the county uh, kicks a bunch of vaccines East Hampton's way. And sure enough, you'll see the town supervisors, you know, <laughs> standing out front greeting constituents as they're online going in to get their shots. So so there is a politics at play. There's also some racial disparity at play. Um, you know, the picture, I think, is developing. I mean, people will be vaccinated eventually. But right now it's an extremely uneven story um, across Long Island, across New York State. And, and, and Denise, he's, Letty, it's he's worth absolutely right. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Uh, well, just so I, I had a, you know, a, an encounter just the other day. And, you know, so much of this is is a failure of outreach and, and communication on so many levels. I was in a grocery store in Southampton Village and I was just checking out and uh, there was a, an elderly lady of color was uh, was the um, uh, clerk. And I asked her if she'd been vaccinated yet. And she said, oh, no, 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 I, I, you know, not yet. I mean, she was easily in her 60s. And I said, well, you know, they have appointments up at the uh, up at the college available. And this is on Wednesday night. So they'd been it had been open all day. She had no idea about that. Uh, mm. I told her that she should go online. She didn't even know that grocery store workers were eligible to uh. get the vaccine. I mean, she was probably over 60. I'm not sure that she knew that that had been lowered to 60. I didn't even ask her that. But she didn't know the grocery store workers were eligible. And then when I was walking out, I stopped to chat with another employee who I knew and said, you know, make sure that she gets a vaccine. And he said, oh, no, no, you have to go to a doctor and get a letter to get the vaccine appointment. And wow. so it's like, you know, Mike, that really points to something interesting, which is throughout this crisis, it seemed to me that the centralization of information and distribution um, has really been a hindrance to public health. And and, you know, we uh, maybe we ta we've talked about this before, but, in, you know, 1918, 1919, the towns had their own health officers who had substantial authority totally. to open and shut businesses. And, you know, it does raise the question of whether uh, whether the, the structure of government in New York state uh, really with towns and villages and, and a dispersed population is really adequate to meet a challenge uh, posed by a pandemic. I think your example of a grocery worker who didn't know um, 
why wasn't she told? Why, you know, that's why wasn't the manager at the grocery store told? Um, and why didn't the manager pass it on? Which I told the mayor of Southampton Village that like within half an hour. And he immediately went over there with a letter, posted it on the employee bulletin board, told the managers, make sure all your employees know this, because Southampton Village has had this very um a uh, progressive effort through their uh, partnership with another group to to vaccinate elderly uh, village residents, but they had focused on residents, not necessarily the people that worked in the village and served their residents. And so he said, that's got to be fixed right away. And it's, you know, it's been remarkable how people have stepped into the breach and, and sort yeah. of filled filled those gaps as they've come up. You know, that's one of the things you had asked before, Joe, about how people may look back at this Um it, it may well be that we look back and, and really see how the centralization of of power and of authority, uh, you know, caused took took lives and it cost lives to have, you know, um, so much power concentrated in, in Hopog and Albany uh, over vaccine distribution. Um, that really it was just an ad hoc effort at the at the sort of at the town or community level um you know the the his the hispanic community here has only had one significant individual outreach and that was organized by a private organization that wasn't a government effort so that was terrific they had 350 doses uh but there certainly doesn't seem to be anybody paying attention to really to really um make sense of the distribution to who to who it's needed other than these top-down declarations that now people who are 65 or 60 or or uber drivers or whoever can uh can be vaccinated it, it, it's kind of chaotic and i think part of that is is has to do with the centralization of of brain power within government it's one of the lessons we'll learn yeah no i was just going to say like also just the to be able to get to the mass vaccination site. Now that there there are more of them, but you know the one that's it was Stony Brook for a long time. That was like the only one really for the general population um, in Suffolk County, and um, you know other than first responders and such. And there's one bus route that goes there, mm -hmm. and the bus stop is not even near where the vaccination site was or is. Um, so, you know, if you're talking particularly about with the Latino community, people relying on mass transit, um, mm -hmm. how do they get there? Just how do you get there? And I just also want to say, Michael, I, I take strong exception to your characterizing someone in their 60s as elderly. <laughs> Sorry. <my bad. laughs> Watch it. You know, to put, a, to put a, an end point on this, Denise, the, the numbers in Suffolk County remain sort of naggingly above the state average too it's it, we're still a region that's considered very high risk yes absolutely and look at i've been watching the hospitalizations uh, in particular and how you know i have i'm nuts i put all this stuff on spreadsheets and like how they really plateaued and they are in the long island region the hospitalizations have plateaued if you look at the state uh, graph too um at a level higher than they were last spring yeah yeah, you know, spring break, yeah. Easter, all and, of these. And that's all coming up. So all of this know. is coming. So it may well, change. And the, the, and the variants, too. I mean, I was reading an article this morning along those same lines that, you know, it, it's a race right now. It's a battle to get people vaccinated before those, you know, before those variants cause other, um, you know, stronger outbreaks and stuff. And, and you know, it, it did mention the plateau. I think that's that's nationwide. The numbers have just kind of plateaued. They're not coming down as, as much as 
had been hoped for, I think. Yeah, it's going to be an, an interesting and an important couple of weeks coming up, I think, probably yeah. for how we deal with this. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines uh, on WLAWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group, as is uh, one of our panelists, Michael Wright, who is a staff writer for the Express News Group. We also have David Rattray, editor of the East Hampton Star, and Denise Civiletti, editor of Riverhead Local. So, David, uh, big ruling uh, this week when it uh, involving the wind farm that's proposed off Montauk. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, so the um, Public uh, Service Commission on Thursday voted unanimously to approve probably the most controversial aspect of this uh, wind farm project, which uh, just to describe the the project a little bit, there's uh, a bunch of wind turbines planned for a site 35 miles east of Montauk Point and uh, maybe 20 miles uh, kind of due south from Point Judith Rhode Island. And, um, you know, so that that that's way out in at, in the ocean. But a group of Wainscot residents really in East Hampton Town are bitterly opposed to the idea of a cable coming ashore under the beach at, in Wainscot, part of East Hampton Town, and then running up a road to get to the distribution grid. Well, the Public Service Commission uh, voted uh, unanimously to approve this 3.5 mile critical section of power cable, underground power cable, um, despite all this bitter opposition. And it was interesting, there, there, um, some of the comments that were associated with this was that um, well, they basically politely called this NIMBYism because they said that uh, alternate sites that some of these Wainscot residents favored for this this cable would actually create more environmental and uh, public disturbance than theirs. Basically, um, Orsted, which is now the developer of this wind farm, was looking for the shortest and therefore least expensive route to get the power ashore and into the grid. Um, and uh, the you know the administrative law judge and the public service commission were having none of it, and uh, so it, you know whether this is going to move ahead to final approvals is a good question. But um, at least the landward side of this, unless unless um, there's a lawsuit, it appears to be going forward. Uh, the other thing that's happening is is that they're. Um, the developers beginning to do some little test drillings to have a look at the underground conditions to run to run the cable. Uh, people are talking about these this wind farm being able to power something on the order of seventy thousand residences, uh, which will certainly add to the the green power um, nut that that the PSCG can supply to people's homes. It, it won't it won't be the entire story, but it's it's a good first step. Um, and East Hampton wants to be at the forefront of green technology, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, they have a goal of 100% renewable energy by 2030. And it was interesting, this, this in the past week, they started talking about including the transportation sector, which is accounts for something on the order of 28% of all greenhouse gas emissions nationwide. Um, East Hampton Town's talking about looking at the transportation s- sector as, as, um, Kind of the the next big nut to crack in terms of reducing emissions. Super difficult, obviously, but but they are talking about doing that. And Mike, like those, the, those, those uh, Wayne Scott residents, they're they're not going to go away anytime soon, right? I mean, they're they're talking about 
um, further challenges and maybe a lawsuit. Yeah, yeah it's, it's almost certain that they are going to uh, file a lawsuit over this. <clears throat> you know, the the viability of which is is probably in question. These utilities do not lose many court cases. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just it just kind of is. And when it comes down to the argument, you know, this is just a power line that's running underground. And then, you know, it has this environmental uh, wrinkle in it in that it has to run underneath the beach. And they've made a lot of uh, changes. You know, the East Hampton Town Trustees were uh, played a big role in really dialing up the requirements on uh, on the landing. Um, you know, the, the drilling and the burying of it, I mean, you know, they're basically going to have to bury a school bus every like thousand feet or something like that through two miles. Of the, it, you know, it's going to be disruptive. It's not just burying a line, but it is in the eyes of, I think, a lot of uh, legal experts that, that uh, analyze this. And but they're going to fight it, certainly. Um, you know, they're going to keep fighting this, the incorporation effort, because they think that they'd be able to derail it that way, even though, you know, a lot of people don't remember very early on, one of the earliest conversations uh, back when Deepwater Wind and Clint Plummer were pitching this project, uh, they sort of <clears throat> made a veiled threat or hint to the town that if the town didn't give them the easements under those roads, the PSC would just overrule them and say, it's necessary. We're, we're going to put it where we think it's best and you can't say yes or no. So uh, I think that drove a lot of the um, the town's eagerness to find an agreement and reach it so that they could, you know, draw some blood from the power. Uh, and they got this $29 million over, you know, technically it's 25 years, but really most of it doesn't start for till the place is built in a couple of years. So. And they, you know, they got they got a they got a nice chunk of change out of it. Could they have gotten more? Maybe. I mean, it's a two billion dollar project. The town did. Uh, you touched on it too. There's an incorporation effort in Wayne Scott. Uh, I'm curious what what you and you know I, I know it's it's all speculation at this point, but the incorporation effort uh, in Wayne Scott to to driven by the idea of trying to stop this. Could they stop it if they create a village? I mean, is there any reason to think that just creating a village decides, no, we're not going to allow this. I think you you sort of touched on the point, Mike, that that it's, it may not be a, a way to stop that project. Right. They, they think it is. I've asked them that, and they've, they've said, we think that the state would um, uh, bow to the desires of the of the local municipality if, if there was such a thing that said, no, you can't put your kids well, under our roads. There is an existing contract between the developer and the town of East Hampton. And so I think a new village would have a, a pretty tough time trying to break a, a, an existing contract, particularly with, with a, essentially a, a utility. So that that is up in the air. But, you know, over, you know, it's been our sense that there's probably more to this incorporation village, uh, incorporate, you know, drive than than simply the um, cable under the beach, because if you look at the people who are involved in the in the uh, village creation effort, not a lot of them are on roads that would be affected by this route. And, you know, really, nobody does anything anywhere, but least of all in the Hamptons, unless it's about money. So the question really is, is where does the money play in in this incorporation effort? And, you know, we may never, never sort of understand that. But, um, you know, I think development pressure, um, you know, other interests, uh, egos might be behind it as well. Um, I've never really bought the argument that this is entirely about uh, 
a cable going under the beach and down the road that, you know, at best, a a temporary um, disruption um, doesn't really make sense. So so I've, I've always felt there's more much more to the story um, in terms of motivations. There may be as many motivations as there are members of the sort of leader leaders of the incorporation effort. Um, and they have a lot of money. So, yeah, I think litigation is. Uh, you know, law- lawsuit is is a newspaper stock and trade, really. Uh, you know, police courts and lawsuits. So we're, we're going to have something to write about, Michael. You know, going forward. No question. You know, a decade probably. Yeah. And to bring Denise into the conversation, so we've talked about this a couple of times uh, in the past couple of months. That um, green energy for you guys, it has more to do with solar, I think, uh, than wind. But I think a lot of people. Um, coming into the idea of, well, we need more green energy, that that'll be easy to get through because it's nothing but positives. And that has not been the case. It's, it's been, it's, it's a slog to try and get the community to support uh, even green energy projects because they, they are disruptive in some ways. Um, we're looking at um, right now, if the last, if the last two that are on the um, conveyor belt get approved, one of which is completely in the hands of the state PS, uh, PSC, the, or the Public Service Department. Um, five, I think 567 acres of uh, solar arrays in uh, the hamlet of Calverton, largely uh, right around uh, the substation, uh, the area around the substation on Edwards Avenue. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, that's a lot of land, and it's land that is either um, some of it was in active um, farm farming. Um, right now, there's a parcel that's uh, being used. It used to be a golf course, but it's now being used as um, a recreational facility, uh, paintball and that sort of thing, um, Long Island Sports Park. Um, and so people are like, well, what are you doing? Our, what are you doing to our hamlet? You know, the people in Calverton are kind of besieged to begin with. They, they live around the, um, the former Grumman site. And there's all kinds of like, you know, what's going to happen with that anxiety. Um, and then there's now all these solar arrays. And while everybody wants green energy, like you said, um, people are not too keen on looking at these, you know, as far as the eye can see, these solar arrays. And people are even raising questions about, you know, how environmentally friendly those uh, panels are. And how, when they when it gets decommissioned, where are they going to go? Are they... Can they be recycled? Or are they going to end up? Are they going to? How are we going to guarantee that they're going to take them away when the plant is no longer, when the facility is no longer useful? Um, so there are, you know, there are plenty of legitimate questions, and you know, there's been one big project that the town um, approved uh, was subject to an environmental impact statement, but now there's a second big project that the town board uh, declared itself lead agency for. And uh, kind of had a little kerfuffle with the planning board over that, but um, and then they then they neglected it. So it's like, how do you you know? I don't know how you do that. <laughs> I don't know, but they did. Um, I also I have to say the definition of ambivalence for me is the golf course is being replaced with solar farms. I'm really happy to see the solar farms really sad to see a good golf course go away. And it's, it's cost, it's cost us at least a couple uh, in the region. So we have a few minutes left uh, and we like to think about looking forward to what we're writing about right now uh, for next week and for the next couple of days, David, you've got a great story that's breaking as we, uh, 
as we're as we're recording. Tell us um, about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was sort of awoken this morning by a, a call. Um, and this is one of those only in Montauk stories. Um, there's a dispute. There's a standoff going on. on um, as of um, Friday morning, there was a standoff going on uh, with a, a landscape contractor attempting to take a $10,000 boulder back from the Montauk Library, where he had done some landscaping. There's a dispute over payment. And um, under cover of darkness, he trucked in all this very heavy machinery um, and loaded it, it loaded the eventually loaded the boulder onto a flatbed. The li uh, a library staffer, site manager, uh, ends up pulling his truck in front of the flatbed, blocking the exit. Um, oh, wow. And as we're recording, this has not been resolved yet. Um, to add a wrinkle to this, the, the, the contractor uh, who is taking his $10,000 $10, boulder back um, is an East Hampton Town trustee. And uh, so it's just one of those stories, you know, Montauk's always had a thing about boulders, um, stories about, you know, people dropping boulders in front of rival restaurants, front doors, just, you know, as a joke. But um, yeah, this is a good one. I don't know how it's going to pan out. Oh, and the, and the cops don't want to get involved. They're just standing by to make sure nobody punches anybody else. So it's, it's possessed boulder. I yeah. love it. Repossessing yeah, a boulder. Definitely. No question. I guess if you're the company that does repossession of boulders, you're waiting around for just this moment and you knew it was going to be there. Um, Denise, what are you working on right now? Well, I, I my goal this afternoon is to produce a uh, uh, sunshine, the sunshine week in the age of COVID column, because I have some things to say about this. <laughs> and, and, and I was in, I was incentivized by this conversation. <laughs> so yeah, explain a, what sunshine week is. Oh, sunshine week. Yes. Uh, well, it's a week dedicated to, to me and everybody else and dedicated to open government. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an it's a national thing, and uh, it's uh, the uh, the News Leaders Association I think um, uh, started it. But we're supposed to, uh, you know, kind of highlight the the need for open government and the importance for open government, the Freedom of Information Act, um, you know, access to public records, which we've been discussing, um, open meetings, which, you know, I don't know about where you guys are, but. They have certainly taken a hit <laughs> um, with the with the COVID epidemic, and um, so I'm, I think it's a it's a never ending struggle to yeah. to make sure that governments, particularly governments of sort of amateurs, part timers, uh, comply with open meetings law, document retention, uh, making documents uh, accessible to the public and to the media in a timely manner. Um, it's a constant fight. It's a constant fight. And virtual meetings in the time of COVID have created new challenges. Uh, we've seen a whole new wrinkles to the conversation, no question. Mike, what are, what uh, what's on your uh, news budget for the week? Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm working on a story about how the restaurant industry uh, weathered the off season that uh, you know a lot predicted would be murderous. Uh, back in the fall, uh, because there weren't the great stores of revenue from the super busy summer that most uh, most businesses usually rely on. Um, you know, it seems that uh, thus far there haven't been too many business failures, um, a couple maybe, but and some of them might not have been related to um, to the uh, the pandemic and 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 
financial uh, stores not squirreled away from the summer. Uh, but also a lot of them uh, seem to have survived because they were busier this winter than uh, than they would normally be. And, and so they were able to uh, keep their heads above water. It, it's not over yet, of course, because, you know, the, the, the great um, mathematical uh, uh, ballet that you have to do in the restaurant business is that you have to earn enough money in late June, July and August so that you then basically whittle that down slowly and make it back to late June, July, <laughs> you know, late June. So, you know, there's a few months to go that, that restaurants have to survive. PPV has helped uh, some of them to a certain extent. The, the new stimulus uh, actually has, has a little bit more benefit for restaurants than uh, the old ones did, than the first one did. Um, so there's, you know, restaurants are, are, are looking back on this and maybe, uh, you know, uh, thanking the Lord that they survived the winter by uh, selling more dinners on Monday nights in January than they would ever have thought was, was likely. And, you know, frankly, you, you, you go through the, the downtowns, uh, you know, certainly Southampton Village and Sag Harbor. And, you know, for January, the restaurant, the week, the restaurants were packed and there's... Uh, uh, there's stacks of to-go orders, even at sort of fancy restaurants. Yeah, takeout's been a big story. I mean, we, yeah. we are hearing that that some restaurant people may be considering going, staying takeout only because of the, the overhead uh, being so much less. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think the, <laughs> the restaurants that made the pivot are the ones that will survive, no question. Right. Bill, we have uh, our 27 Speaks podcast this week is about the hospital, and we're going to have uh, Bob Challoner, uh, the chief administrative officer, uh, talking a little bit about the Q&A that I did this week with him. Uh, 27 Speaks, the podcast is available where you get podcasts. Uh, that's behind the headlines for this week. I want to thank everybody who joined us today. Denise Civiletti, uh, David Rattray, Michael Wright, uh, my co-host Bill Sutton, of course. Uh, we will be back here next week. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Good conversation. Good conversation.